I believe that Rob Zombie is the George Lucas of the modern horror film. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Film Find. We are back yet for another full episode. I haven't been doing so many Film Find fives lately, but uh, we'll probably get a couple of those in here or there. But we're here for the important one. Uh, my name is Adam Portress, and I am here with... Matt Smith. And we are going to be talking about movies today. We have some really interesting stuff for you guys. Uh, first, we're going to do a little bit of uh, what you've been watching and then we're going to delve into two uh, two new releases, one relatively new, only a week old, and the other one uh, just came out this weekend. Uh, the first movie up we're going to be doing, we're going to be reviewing uh, Rob Zombie's Lords of Salem. Um, didn't make a huge splash at the box office, but has made a huge splash with both of us in very opposing directions, I believe. So that's going to be, <laughs> stick around for that. That is going to be an amazing, amazing conversation. And uh, we're also going to be reviewing Michael Bay's Pain and Gain, the new low-budget for Michael Bay uh, movie uh, starring Mark Wahlberg and The Rock. Uh, It's going to be quite an interesting show, so uh, please, uh, let's do this ahead of time, too, because like I said uh, last time, uh, we do this at the end of the show. I want to do it at the beginning of the show, just in case, for some weird reason, you wouldn't make it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you have any questions or suggestions for this show, you want to talk to us, reach out to us in some way. Uh, email us at thefilmfind at gmail.com. Go to thefilmfind.com, and there you can get the uh, links to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, the whole nine yards for all that social media garbage. And uh, please do that. And uh, while you're there, go review us on iTunes. Uh, a review on iTunes just helps us you know, grow the podcast, get out there, get to more listeners and things like that. So uh, if you could do that, that would be much, much appreciated. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a little break right now and come back with a little What You've Been Watching. This is a side and hollow sky. He says the stars come out tonight. He says the city is ripped back sides. He says the winding ocean drives. And everything was made for you and me. All of it was made for you and me. Cause it just belongs to you and me. So let's take a Sleep at night 
right, welcome back, everybody. We are going to delve in a little bit of what you've been watching this week. I have a pretty interesting selection, but we are going to start with you, Matt Smith. What have you been watching this week? Um, I also have kind of an interesting list. Uh, first up, I want to mention this um, the Jason Statham movie that came out last year, Safe, uh, has been uh, recently added to Netflix. And uh, I've watched it twice. Like once to actually watch it and then once just because I was doing some work and wanted something on in the background. Um, and I enjoy the hell out of that movie. It's it's pretty solid. I heard good um, things. Yeah, I think if you're a Statham fan, you will really like it. If you're not a Statham fan, you might find something to like about it. And uh, people who are in the middle of the road should probably just not bother, I guess. I don't know, because obviously you don't care about the same things I care about. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Bald men doing sexy action. <laughs> right. Um, I also saw this uh, film um, for class a couple weeks back now almost. Um, it's from the 1960s. Uh, it's the only film of these filmmakers, uh, Straub and Huyer, a pair of French and German nationals directing predominantly German films. Um but this movie was the chronicle of Anna Magdalena Bach, and um, I kind of hated it. It's a really, really slow, um, like experimental biopic based on the journals of Johann Sebastian Bach's second wife, and it's literally like just dudes dressed up like J.S. Bach uh, playing his concertos and things like that hmm. in full length sequences, um, no cutting, uh, between it's, it's really kind of odd and structurally intriguing, but, uh, just bored me to tears. Um, although I did find myself liking some things about it, like the way that like the powdered wigs would move while people were playing their instruments <laughs> and stuff like, like little locks, uh, swinging from the back of their heads and stuff. Sounds um, intense, bro. Look at them live swinging. <laughs> it is, it is pretty, pretty intense. Not for everybody. Um, almost not for me, but this is what I do. So I had, I had to watch it. Um, I also went to a screening. Um, this film actually opens theatrically in the U.S. tomorrow um, on May first. But uh, I went to the screening at the High Museum of Art of uh, Mexican filmmaker Carlos Regadas, who directed uh, Japon and Battle for Heaven. Um, but his new film, Post Tenebras Lux, which walked away, away with a, uh, I think, a special jury prize at Cannes. Um, I saw that. He was in attendance um, and was a very intelligent man. Um, his film is extremely divisive. Uh, people really love it or really hate it. I fall in the love camp. Um, it's bizarre. It's an experimental narrative feature. So it, uh, or I guess it's an atypical narrative feature is what he would prefer that I describe it as. Um, in any case, uh, it was, it was interesting. It features a luminescent neon orange devil, um, various uh, surrealist imagery of uh, like just animals being animals and being awesome and uh, like just follows this couple uh, back and forth through 
various uh, like times or time frames of their lives um, with their kids uh, in Mexico, outside of Mexico City. And it's actually really good. Um, I know that sounds like I didn't describe anything, but that's kind of how the <laughs> description of that film would be perfectly. Um, yeah. So that's what I've been watching lately. Those those three things. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm gonna just seem like just uh, stupid and like, you're like eh, these are these uh, highbrow kind of all right. <laughs> well, I I will say that the reason that I've been that's doing why we the have you on this show though because it's the, but it's it's the end of the semester. It's what I have been watching. Um, I guarantee you that this weekend I'm going to see Iron Man. Oh yeah. And I'm probably going to uh, just go and see that. I'm, I'm planning on at some point seeing both of the stupid White House exploding movies. Yeah. Um, so I'm not opposed in any way to uh, the muck. I like getting into that shit during the summer. So. And you know that's that's an interesting thing that you say that because like there's so many, especially film critics out there, who mm -hmm. don't see that there can be people who enjoy both types of films. It's like I love you know I can watch any sort of you know foreign cinema, you know, any sort of nouveau verte fucking any of that yeah. shit and I love watching shit blow up too. Yeah. It's like, you know, well, mm. so so the probably one of the most prominent popular like high-minded film critics right now is uh Kent Jones who writes for Film Comment and he was the co uh co-director with Martin Scorsese of the World Cinema Foundation for a long time, like the restoration outfit that would restore important world uh, cinema prints. And uh, when he visited uh, Atlanta last, uh, last year, last fall in uh, 2011, um, he, uh, he and I really like struck it off because we have this like odd love of just how amazingly insane and awful Michael Bay's Transformer movies are. Um, so, you know, it's, it, I don't think it's as isolated as it seems that, that we love crap, but, uh, yeah, we, we definitely think about it probably in a different way sometimes, but I do enjoy shit because it's shit sometimes. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm sure we'll definitely be talking a little bit about that with our, uh, with our, and, and of, of that kind of vein when, in our, uh, Pain and Gain review, what with you know Michael Bay and the types of movies mm -hmm. that Michael Bay puts out, and we'll talk a little bit about that as yeah. well. Uh, let's see, what have I been watching this week? Uh, it's a big, kind of, it's I'd say it's fairly eclectic. Um, I saw, I finally got around to seeing the uh, the the movie called uh, Oh uh, This Must Be the Place with uh, Sean Penn. Oh, the Sean Penn flick. Yeah. Uh, I gotta say, I, I went into this with not much expectations, and as the movie kept going along, I was it just kept going. I really, really like this. Uh, Sean Penn plays a retired um, a retired musician. Uh, let's just be honest. He looks like. Um, Oh, oh, what's this? My, now my, why is Robert my, Smith. Robert Smith. I don't know. Yeah. I was like, I was like Smith. I'm like, why is my brain blanking on his first name? <laughs> but he looks like Robert Smith. Uh, David Byrne is in the film, so it kind of like they kind of put him as if he was in this, you know, real world. But Penn's character, like when you really start off, first of all, he looks like you know your grandmother dressed up as as Nikki Six, and uh, you would think <laughs> that that would be a horrible thing, and it kind of is. And like he plays it in such this very. He's got a very high voice, very, very almost feminine kind of quality to it. And uh, at first you're like, jeez, this is going to be annoying. This is going to be bad. But, like, you get it, and then 
within his character, when he gets angry or upset at certain moments, you feel you, you, it, that register kind of changes a little bit. So you know that something is going on deep down in in there, in his psyche. You find out why he retired from music. and um, But the big thing is, is uh, his dad dies, who he'd been estranged from for like 30 years. And uh, he grew up thinking that his dad just didn't love him. And so he left him at like you know 15 or whatever the hell and uh, went on to do his big rock and roll lifestyle. Finds out that his dad is dead and also that one of the members of the Nazi party that had interned his dad uh, during World War II is still alive. And he believes it's a horrible injustice that his dad had to die before this horrible criminal. And so it essentially turns into a, a aged-out rocker revenge story. Uh, not played out in the way that you might think it would have been. Uh, it's a bit of a slow burn, but that's kind of what I like about it. Um, the director, this is his first kind of... Uh, it's his big first American kind of film, and you definitely kind of see that in... He kind of, he puts his balls on the table, really, with the way that he moves the camera and the chances that he takes within his direction. It might be a little too flary at some points, but it's definitely of a man who's just like, I may never get another chance like this, so I'm going all out on it. And uh, in a way that you, you have to respect that. But uh, it's a movie that... Uh, it talks. It's interesting because it's about uh, relationships between you know father and son, and what it means to you know go out your own life and have acceptance of of uh, different things in your life that you cannot actually control. So uh, this must be the place uh, is on Netflix. Watch instant. Uh, give it a shot. It's actually pretty good. Uh, I also watched a documentary called. Um, just like being there. It mostly focuses on the uh, gig poster scene uh, that's come up uh, probably about in the last decade, really, where it's gotten big, where uh, bands put out, you know, silkscreen posters of their concerts and they've become like collectible pieces and what that means for like the art world and whatnot. And uh, it also goes in shortly and talks about the, uh, the Mondo movie posters, which uh, most nerds have really come to love. And they're very sought after pieces because they only make like you know 400 prints per run. And when they're they don't really, for the most part, tell you when they're going to go on sale. They may give you like you know a date, but you don't know the time. And then when once they're gone, they're gone. And it goes into like you know people flipping them and selling them on eBay for a ridiculous amount of money and things like that. But uh, really cool uh, documentary to just kind of see about that scene that I'm I don't think a ton of people truly know about, but uh, how that's how that's really emerging and being seen and taken as a as an actual art form. Uh, so that's uh, just like being there. It's also available on Netflix Watch Instant, which I've been watching a lot of lately. <laughs> um, and also, let's see, I'll round it out with, uh, well, two more, actually. Uh, I just saw, I just rewatched The Invisible Man, which I hadn't really watched since I was a kid. And as you're a kid, you don't really have that kind of perspective on things. And, uh, you know... The Invisible Man is just is so good. <laughs> it really is not only as as what it what it you know is on the surface, which is just a special effects movie to show you who like oh we have this cool you know uh, way to show invisible invisibility. Uh, but Claude Rains' performance is what truly makes that movie. The dude is not seen for ninety five percent of the movie, and. <coughs> 
you just feel his presence. I don't know anybody else that could like. There's few actors that could really kind of put that off in you know, right? And just have that kind of feeling throughout the entire thing. And you and you have a real sense of this is a very dangerous man. And yeah. it's it's a really it's besides being a great special effects feature for the time, it's also I think an interesting character study on that guy as well. But. Yeah. Uh, Claude Rains is Claude Rains is terrific in that film, and uh, he, you know this was his, it was his first film. Yeah, his, um, he'd done like mostly plays and stuff before, right? Yeah, he, he was a well-known stage actor, um, highly regarded in the British theater, and uh, got hired on by James Whale to do this picture. And uh, it's always been uh, funny to me that perhaps you know he was one of the greatest actors <clears throat> of his generation. Um, and uh, it's ironic that the only time he appears on screen during his first uh, his first on screen role is as a corpse at the end of the film. Uh. But yeah, it's it's definitely it's it's one of the universal ones that's not uh, that that people don't automatically think of. Pretty much everybody you know runs straight to like Frankenstein and uh, the Wolfman and things like that, which are good films. Don't please don't get me wrong on that. But uh, yeah, definitely uh, check that out. Uh, the last film I watched was, uh, I can't pronounce it because it's in French and my French is horrible and my fiance is fluent in French. And if I say French words that are incorrect, um, I get uh, beat up a little bit. So uh, I'm going to leave it to you, Matt, because we talked about this a little bit ahead of time. You go ahead and so, pronounce So this is Delian Bunuel's uh, Un Chien Andalou, yeah? There you go. The, an Andalusian dog. <laughs> the English translation. Yeah, it was... Uh, it was it's 15 minutes. It's on Netflix Watch Instant, which I was like, kind of really surprised that that's where it, where I found it. Um, and uh, it's 15 minutes long, and it'll leave you scratching your head for a long time. Um, it was initially made uh, by these guys to just kind of be a big giant fu to the uh, to the whole uh, French surrealist movement at the time. And instead of really being that big F you to that surrealist movement, the surrealist movement was, we accept you as one of our own, which I think is absolutely hysterical. Uh, but this is, uh, it's, it's quite a famous film. You've probably seen a quick snippet of it at some point or another with a man going, uh, with a razor blade at a woman's eye. Uh, it's actually even been parodied in the Simpsons of all places. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so check that out and, uh, you'll kind of be scratching your head for a little while as to, uh, what the hell any of it meant. And I got news for you. It didn't really mean a whole hell of a lot because it doesn't follow a really structure. It's supposed to be, uh, um, free associative kind of dream sequency esque sort of thing. So, you know, it's one of those, uh, art for sake of art kind of bull crap. So anyways, it, it is good looking. It's an interesting thing to watch and certainly have conversations about afterwards. So, well, it's, it's avant-garde. I mean, it's different. It's function is different than narrative cinema, right? So, um, it comes out of like legitimate, uh, quote unquote, legitimate artistic movements that are happening at the same time. And that's, I mean, it's meant to be viewed, uh, under those, uh, parameters, which is not something we tend to ascribe to like Hollywood style narrative cinema, right? So, yeah, absolutely, and that's the thing too is that like I think a lot of times because this was, uh, um, I, if I'm not mistaken, it's, it was their first foray into film, and a lot of times, you know, coming from an artist standpoint, it's like, okay, if you're a painter, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a good musician per se. Uh, you can be. 
you can be, but that doesn't like just because you have talent in this one field doesn't mean that you're going to be able to, you know, know how to tell a story and be able to go out in, in this other medium and be able to do that one as well as you do the other one. That might be simplifying things a little bit, but I don't know. That's how I feel about it. But uh, oh, and I always I always love the joke. Uh, Avant garde is French for doesn't make any damn sense. So. All right, that's a little bit of what we've been watching this week. We are going to take a break, and boy, there's some interesting stuff about to happen, because we are going to be reviewing Rob Zombie's new film, Lords of Salem. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we're actually gonna we're gonna wait one more segment before we do our uh, review of uh, Lords of Salem. Um, I, I wanted to I forgot to put this into the show rundown, but I want to do a new segment that we're going to call um, "Guess." It's, it's one I call "Guess That Horrible Review on IMDb." <laughs> Okay, Matt. We, as we all know, IMDb is a uh, cesspool. Cesspool. That's a good word. Is is a horrible cesspool laden with just the most ignorant morons this world has to offer. If you don't believe that, go look at an IMDb message board sometime. Blow your mind. Well, uh, at least, in, at least, movie watchers. If you want the real people that are the worst, uh, check out like Stormfront or something. Okay. Like that. Well, there you go. <laughs> All right, so what Ron we're going to... Ron website, too. All right, hey, hey, all right. <laughs> <laughs> he knew that was a stab at me. All right, what we're actually going to do today is, it's called Guess That, Guess that Horrible IMDb Review. I'm going to read a review of a that's that a user has left on IMDb of a, of a uh, much-beloved movie, and I'm going to have Matt try to guess what the movie is that is being reviewed. Now, I'm going to take a couple of things out here and there, obviously, to hide, you know... Any clues that were left within the reading of the, uh, or within the writing of the review? Okay, number one, uh, its title is Rotten, which is weird, being that's on IMDb and not Rotten Tomatoes. All right, it consists one star, one star out of ten. So that just <laughs> kind of shows you one star out of ten. It constantly astounds me how a film like this is held in such high regard by so many people. In fact, I might add, I find it equally astounding that the director has earned so such a good reputation for his endless series of childish, idiotic films. Anyway, I digress. Firstly, let's get the special effects off the table. I don't care that they're terrible. It doesn't influence my opinion of the film because there are plenty of films out there with poor special effects that I enjoy. A genuinely brilliant film can survive such a flaw. 
The trouble with, the mo- with this movie is the same kind of issue that plagues 99% of the director's work. It's childish. There's no menace, nothing, nothing genuinely scary, and I don't mean it requires gore to be scary. The Omen is a fine example of a, gore, of, of a fairly gore-free movie that's utterly terrifying. There's no menace, nothing genuinely scary, and no, I don't, re- and no, I don't mean it requires... Oh, wait, I just fucking read that. <laughs> Sorry, I was scrolling. It's simply boring. The characters are entirely impossible to like or care about. The music, as one might expect from childish composer, insert composer name here, who is aptly suited uh, to such a childish filmmaker as the director, is abysmal. They trite and idiotic. It's trite and idiotic, and never even approaches anything menacing or fear-inducing. I'll skip another part about him uh, sucking off the omen. Uh, <laughs> I've watched this mountain of crap on more than one occasion, trying to find some shred of merit in it, but I can't. There's nothing good to say about it. Ironically, though, I did actually enjoy the book as a bit of entertainment. But whenever, but whatever appeal there was in it, I certainly it certainly didn't translate to the screen. The '70s produced some great horror films, but it also produced some complete and utter garbage. Jaws below. Ah, oh, god damn it! It's Jaws. I fucked it up. <laughs> Tried to edit it all out of my head. Jaws. Someone reviewed Jaws. We kind of fucked up the category, but you know that's how it works. We're gonna do the. <laughs> I had an ing- I had an inkling suspicion that it was Jaws. Anyway, um, I was doing so well with editing which, out all the Spielberg. Which is reference. ironic <laughs> that they talk about the gore um, content in there at all, since I think Jaws probably has actually less gore than The Omen does. I mean, somebody gets the cab- straight up decapitated and, in The Omen. Yeah. Well, plus, like, the dogs and, like, Gregory Peck's fucking arm goes through a <laughs> through an iron wrought fence post. Like, I will say this, though. Having seen Jaws on the big screen, the horde does play quite a different uh, uh, role when seen on the big screen. I mean, you know, when you we all kind of grew up watching uh, Jaws on home video, and I got a chance to see a 35-millimeter print a couple of years ago on the big screen, and it was just like, though I had seen the movie, you know, several dozen times it was like seeing it for the first time everybody knew you know where every scare was but yet you know people were still jumping in their seats and you know when uh, quint is being you know eaten up and there's no music and it's on this giant screen and you're just like shit this really is scary i mean it's so you can see why in the 70s that it truly took people by storm and you know but anyways all right so, other than me fucking that up by <laughs> accidentally reading the title of the one, we're gonna do it again. Uh, we're gonna do it again next episode. Maybe we even might do a couple film fine fives where we have these horrible reviews. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe print it and then just black through it. Yeah, I gotta redact some stuff <laughs> just so I don't do it and read it off like a freaking idiot. I was doing so well that was like the last line. Anyways, Jaws. I mean, insert name of film here. Crap. Jaws the Revenge. <laughs> Jaws the Revenge. Jaws the Revenge. Is that the, what you're talking that about? That much beloved film, Jaws the Revenge. All right, so it that's that's our... Jaws 3D. Oh gosh, that's. You want to talk about some shitty Jaws or some shitty 3D movies? Let's talk about the early 80s. All right. Let's... Why is you ever you ever watch um, Friday 13th and like 2D and just the first like if you don't if you forget that it's a 3D movie, sometimes you're like, who decided this was a good shot? 
Why is the yo-yo going straight? I mean, you like it's straight up from the bottom of the floor looking up at the ceiling and the yo-yo coming at the screen. You're like, what kind of narrative purpose? Do- oh, this is in 3D. It's garbage. Anyways. Yeah. All right, so uh, that was a failed attempt at a good bit, and we're going to try to do that again, but with redacted information. Uh, so uh, stay tuned. I swear we will come back. Our next segment is going to be a review of Rob's, Rob Zombie's new movie, The Lords of Satan. everybody welcome back we are going to jump into our first uh new review this week uh one of two uh this one is a new release but still kind of a it's not quite as new uh you know it's last week uh, it came out but uh we can still review it now it's still in theaters uh here is the trailer for rob zombies the lords of salem everybody that was the trailer for rob zombie's new film the lords of salem which came out last week theatrically uh uh not to a ton of theaters i don't think because i had to actually kind of uh search out the theater around here that was actually uh showing it so i think there's only like one or two that was actually showing it most of them have kind of opted not to and uh didn't exactly uh didn't actually make a huge splash on the world but uh here is the uh little log line here from imdb Heidi, a radio DJ, is sent a box containing a record, a, quote, gift from the Lords, 
The sounds within the grooves trigger flashbacks of her town's violent past. Heidi is Heidi going mad, or is the or are the lords uh, back to take revenge on Salem, Massachusetts? <coughs> All right. Okay. Let's um before we before we get going into the movie itself, let's let's take a second and talk about Rob Zombie. Um, Matt, what are your overall thoughts with Rob Zombie as a filmmaker? Um, well, I actually really like Rob Zombie as a filmmaker. Um, I don't like House of a Thousand Corpses as much, but I think that once he makes The Devil's Rejects, he kind of asserts his voice a little more. Um, I'm not saying that it's one that everyone will like, but I think he's definitely a distinctive American horror director, um, which is important. There are very few of those. Um... And uh, I, I don't know. I like that he that he likes to get down and dirty in various ways, aesthetically, um, storyline wise, and uh, just play around with things in the genre that have perhaps become a bit cliched. Um, and then he uses those cliches in interesting ways. I think. Yeah. So that's just generally my feeling on it. Yeah, uh, I I saw. Uh... I recently bought because uh, it was on like sale for super cheap. I just bought uh, uh, rebought House of a Thousand Corpses on Blu-ray, and uh, it just uh, it certainly it d- didn't hold up as well from what I'd remembered. Uh, no. It's it's not really that great of a film. Uh, I really enjoyed Devil's Rejects, um, but I felt after that once we've gone into Halloween uh, and especially Halloween Two. Rob Zombie has almost become what I consider to be a parody of himself, which is, it's like what I think, you know, Mad TV or SNL would have done to where it's just called, let's make something that evokes this Rob Zombie kind of stuff. And it's, it almost seemed Rob Zombie was trying to tell you, hey, I'm Rob Zombie, which is, you know, let's have William Forsythe say fuck a thousand times. It's, um, art direction that doesn't make any sense and we'll talk a little bit about that in uh in salem i mean while it's while it's good looking uh narratively it makes no sense it's like you know like in halloween i want to say it was halloween 2 or or 1 i I fucking forget they're almost interchangeable pieces of crap to me um where like the chick's house uh looks like like her bedroom looks like a fucking cbgb's bathroom I mean, it's like there's things that don't make sense in the real world that, you know, as far as art direction and things like that go. Uh, Rob Zombie, I believe, is a guy who takes who would love, love, love to see himself as an artist, as someone to be taken, taken seriously and be seen as an artist. And um, I I knew and I, I wish I should have pulled it up ahead of time so I could read it off to you. But the second that I knew that Rob Zombie wanted to be this great artiste who uh, wants to be taken so seriously as a filmmaker was, uh, and how I knew I hated Halloween 2 from frame 1, was his little opening uh, title, no, it's not title card, but uh, opening sequence of, of Halloween 2 where it talks about the symbolism of, of a white horse. And Rob mm-hmm. Zombie, just at that point I was just like, this guy is just, he's ridiculous. He he wants he wants people to believe that he's this great artistic guy, and I think he has these great aspirations to be as such, but I don't think that he has the chops to pull it off. All right, so that's that's quickly just our our, our thoughts on Rob Zombie. It's like I want to like the guy, I want to really have him 
become a great filmmaker, but I just don't, I certainly don't think he's there. And at least for me with Lords of Salem, I think he's almost kind of just almost cemented that for me as a guy who wants to be great, but I don't know if he'll ever reach the goal that he believes that is, is waiting for him somewhere. I, um, I I completely disagree with almost every one of your points. Um, (laughs) I, I think that uh, that both of the Halloween films, the second one in particular, are um, like really engaging and play around with the genre's form and function in uh, compelling ways. I um, I want to say that uh, Halloween Two really represents kind of the apio- uh, ap- apotheosis of. Um, this kind of new brutality in American horror cinema. So, um, yeah, I just, I think that there's some, something going on in Halloween two, definitely. But I, I, I think Lords of Salem is something special, um, in the tradition of American horror. Yeah. Look, I, I, I agree that like what he wants to do is good. I just don't know if that's, something that he can truly deliver. I, I hope so. But um, here are my ridiculously uh, controversial thoughts on on Rob Zombie. And, well, I, w- I want to do this. I want to say this real quick, so uh, just so everybody knows. Matt's uh, kind, of, kind of working slash recording here today, so if you hear some noise in the background and stuff, uh, the man is trying to make a living, damn it. But uh, we're so committed to you folks that we're actually, you know, recording this while he's working at the same time. So, uh, you know, if we hear some uh, noise in the background, forgive that. That's what that is. But um, here are some of my controversial statements about Rob Zombie. Uh, I was thinking, I was walking the dog the other day, and this is what came to mind. And uh, you're going to hate this. And we'll, t- uh, we'll get into more Lords of Salem bit, and I, and I can have things to kind of back up these wild statements. But uh, I believe that Rob Zombie is the George Lucas of the modern horror film. Uh, I think he's a great idea man, but he's just he doesn't really have that ability to execute things. George Lucas... Like when you really look at his at his breadth of work, it, what what is really great about what he does is coming up with these great ideas, handing them off to someone else, letting them do them and execute them far better than he ever could imagine. I mean, look at uh, you know the writing of American Graffiti and uh, and uh, of course uh, Empire Strikes Back. And I don't care what anybody says, I still believe that you know the original Star Wars was ghost written by somebody that was not George Lucas. When you go back and look at that original script, it's not even close. So I think somebody came in and doctored that up, but no one ever took credit for it. Um, and I also believe, and we'll talk about this within his several, with his you know list of films that he he's directed, as well as especially especially this one, is that. Rob Zombie is also the Charles Foster Kane of horror movies. Now, for those of you who haven't seen Citizen Kane, <laughs> Charles Foster Kane at one point buys his untalented wife singer, a, he builds her a giant opera house for her. Now, she is a terrible opera singer. He is the only one you know, who is in love with her, but he tries to make everyone else fall in love with her and her gifted talents, of which she does not have. And I believe... That is Rob Zombie with his movies. Look at every one of his movies. His wife is in them. She, I, you know, she's a lovely looking lady, but she cannot act her way out of a fucking paper bag. And, and this, I think he's just like, I want you guys, because when you fall in love with somebody, you you see past all of their faults and everything that's wrong with them. That's that's what love is. Is accepting somebody for who that they, they who they are. 
And that's what Rob Zombie has done and wants us to do is look past all of her faults, key in this point, acting, and just accept her for the love that he has. And God bless him for, you know, wanting that for his wife. But frankly, it needs to be somebody else. And that's what I think Lords of Salem really could have done with. It's not necessarily even her at this particular case. But I do believe that if Rob Zombie, while it's such a visually striking director, and especially in Lords of Salem, does a great job visually of putting things together, uh, there doesn't seem to be any sort of execution there. I think if he would have said, here's my idea for what I want to do with this movie, gave this, you know, gave the script, you know, you do the script, give it back to me, I will direct it, you might have had a great film on your hands. But this utterly just seemed lacking to me. Lords of Salem to me is a lot like uh, it's it's a lot like a pretty girl. Okay, a pretty girl is great when you know you're talking to her and or when you're just looking at her. You know, I always say I would rather have somebody with a lot of brains than you know a lot of looks and no brains. And that's what I think, especially Lords of Salem is is like it's this great looking girl, but when you sit down and talk to her, there's nothing in between the ears. Uh, it's kind of like. It's very superficial as to what what's going on in there, and I, I don't know. I'm good. I'm rambling on here, Matt. You go ahead and tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> um. So so I have uh, I don't know. I have a deep affinity for um Italian horror films, um, particularly what a lot of people who aren't necessarily horror fans um would call crap, um. We're talking not just uh, Argento, who's like widely acknowledged as a major horror film director, and you can definitely see his Argento kind of vibes definitely in Lord of Salem for sure. Um, but I also people like Lucio Fulci, who um, I think in some of the like the uh, designs of the demons in this film, you kind of get that uh, that imagery from Fulci, the like weird mask face. Uh, Kind of like they look like they have a burlap sack for a face demon. Kind of a melty burlapy. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely something that appears in several Fulci films. Um, I think you also get a lot of the hammer um, supernatural horror in this film. Um, and I, I don't know. I actually think this movie's great. Uh, my controversial statement about it that you're well aware of at this point is uh, <laughs> that it, it's the best American horror film since William Friedkin's Bug and perhaps even since Wes Craven's New Nightmare all the way back in 1994. Um, that is intentionally hyperbolic <laughs> and controversial, but it is nonetheless exactly what it is. Um, I think... Yeah, I don't know. I think that this is the movie that uh, Zombie made without interference for very little money. Um, the Weinstein's heavily heavily edited both of the uh, Halloween films. Mm -hmm. So um, I think there were issues on that front with those, but I actually really like Halloween 2. Um, and and uh, I don't know. I think Lords of Salem is badass. I had a friend who described it as a... Uh, crackhead's version of to the devil a daughter which i think is very accurate um not necessarily saying we needed that but here it is and we have it so what do we do with it uh yeah and i mean i i, I can see why people will really hate this movie but i i really like the slow burn of it it's uh i don't know it's i i think it's great 
Well, it's like I said before. It's like I, I certainly don't mind slow burns, and honestly, that's what I thought this one would be. Uh, would be ultimately is a very slow burn, but would ultimately give me something at the end. It's kind of how I also felt with uh, Mulholland Drive was that like, you know, you're confused and uh, you know whatever throughout the entire thing. And you're like, this is building something. This is coming to something. We're going to get to some head here. There's going to be some revelation. We're going to get to some point where we, where there's just a big aha moment, the moment of enlightenment that we've all figured out why, what, why everything is going on, and that never happens. And that, to me, is is what this. I, there was. It felt I don't know. like I he think, wanted I think the a payoff. Climax, but I think the climax of this film was just kind of brilliant in the way that it didn't address any like overarching concerns like what happens is that the like like evil wins out on some level right i mean i i, I suppose i honestly yeah. god it's like most of it i'm very confused as to the majority of things that happen in this movie that, because i that, don't think he's think, that great of a storyteller i think that um also another like key component of that might be that um like story isn't important um, and that's also something that's imported over from the Italian horror cinema. And, um, yeah, like you can look at an Argento film and place any individual set piece, um, side by side with another and say, okay, this is bad and this is bad and this looks weird and this doesn't make any sense. But if you look at the film as a whole, it's like there are so many decisions that are intentionally made in that way that there's no way to, except to address it as like this total control author authoritarian um like presence right um and i think that's what what happens in lords of salem and uh, i think if you have problems with zombie prior to this film you probably oh absolutely are um are <laughs> they're are probably magnified like by this by this film, um, but if you like an amateur, if you I? don't, then it's probably okay. Yeah, uh, that's and and that's another thing too is, uh, which I also find very interesting is that um, zombie just I, I think in a lot of ways he wants to he wants to push buttons in, in a way and and I think that's what he does a lot with this with this movie specifically uh, is kind of wants to grab at the, you know and poke at that right uh when you especially a religious thing where there's a lot of hail satan and I, I don't have any problems with that you can do whatever you want to do and that that's that's cool in the gang but to be able to just it seems like somebody just provoking somebody just because they can just to get a rise out of it and the funny thing is is that these are the, no one will, those people will never see this film they have no you know reason to want to see it and they're not gonna and and so like there's things like that 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 seem a little bit you know over the top or over the topness sake and but you you're right in as much as like about how this thing is put. I think that's part of a tradition though that's just uh, like generically tied to how we think about the witch film in general like uh, like Rosemary's Baby um, like there's no reason to have Roman and Minnie and the 30 other people all nude in a room saying hail Satan over and over and yeah, over but again the, but, the, but uh -oh. the thing with that is is that that movie in in my opinion, that movie earned that moment. That was most like so. We we have a uh, our, our roommate here 
she had never really seen the movie before, kind of had heard about it or whatever, and she came in right at, like, just before the big reveal in Rosemary's Baby, and then it was such, like, having not even watched the film, it was such a holy shit moment to her, and had you, had you, you know, sat through the previous hour and a half of everything setting up, and you didn't know any of this coming, it's like, that's, but, what, while that was crazy and over the top, it seemed certainly earned, and I just don't think that that was earned here as much as it was. I think Rob Zombie has a an affinity and a love for, like you said, these Italian films and the films of the 70s and pre-code horror and all that shit. But I don't think that he's really actually sat down to think what makes those movies good and translated that in for his own filmmaking. Well, I, I disagree. I think this is great. and And I think that we'll be lucky to have another American horror film in the next couple of years that's even close to how good it is. I, and, I'll, and I'll give you this. It's for, for its ambition and want, it is, it is very good. And, and I would want somebody to go in with the earnestness that he does with this movie because I think that that's what's going to drive horror as a genre because let's, let's face it, right now we're, we're looking, we're not in a prime time. And I really like to, I'd like to delve into this on, uh, on, on an episode sometime of the roller coaster uh, that horror has taken over the years. Uh, you know, with its kind of dominance in the 80s and then fall off in kind of the 90s, the resurgence in the, you know, scream and post-scream world and things like that. And uh, I think we're at, uh, and uh, it's dive up again. So, I mean, depending upon who you talk to, but especially in dollars uh, with the uh, the Saw films and the uh, torture porn, if you will, uh, films of that era and how then that those times have gone back down and we're in this kind of, Lull again, people got tired of the quote-unquote gore, uh, torture porn films. And uh, so we're actually going to, you know, since we're at this lull right now, maybe sometime, again, we can pick up and go, oh, all right, we're we're at another stage of horror films. And I, I think movies like Lords of Salem can help push us in that right direction, but have yet to really grasp a hold, especially artistically, yes, but... Um, in order to make more of these films, you know, just be made in general, they need to be is somewhat commercially successful. And uh, I think you're right. That's that's what really needs to happen in a way. And like I, I'm for I'm for the step that this movie helps start to make. I just don't know if he is the right person to get. So maybe we need. I mean, I'd love to see another uh, Alexander Jha movie. That's a, a, a good original movie from him. That's I'd love to see things like that and. Uh, Oh, good, good luck, because uh, Maniac's coming out, and of course that's a remake. Yeah, and uh, I, I don't, I don't know. But then again, the the remake, you know, the the remake that he did was was pretty good. Well, that's all. He's he's directed a lot of remakes. Well, he did. He did. Was, Hills Have Eyes is good. Wasn't Mirrors a remake too? Mirrors also a remake, pretty which, solid. Yeah, I enjoyed that movie. I don't think a ton of people did, but I, I like. Piranha Three D, which is amazingly good. In a very bad B movie way that uh, is intentional. Oh, oh, yes. Piranha, okay, I was for a second. Not I was three double D. I was talking three double D because three double D is an awful piece of shit. But Piranha three D actually is really good. Um, and you know, and so I'll watch his Maniac remake. I, d I do want Aha to do some stuff. But yeah, that's that's I, I want that kind of stuff. And I think Rob Zombie. I, I hope that this movie, maybe not this movie per se, but I, I hope certainly his efforts bring forth that kind of resurgence in 
in in horror, but um, and and I don't want to sit here and say Rob Zombie needs to make commercial films because like that it wouldn't be true to who he, who he is, even though. And let me let me say this real quick, and I'm going to ask you about this. Does this is Rob Zombie's one, two, three, four? Is this his fourth or fifth theatrical film? This fifth. Okay, yeah. it's his fifth theatrical film, and yet I'm seeing a lot of reviewers go through and give him a Rob Zombie is still trying to find his voice. How long are we going to give this man to find his voice? Um, I think some of that is just that like they already don't agree with his voice. Um, no, but these are people I, who seem to like these are these are positive reviews that, yeah, that are th- like he's still kind of trying to find out who he is and where he was. And and for me, it's like at your fifth feature. You, I think you should. I think you should have an idea as to where you are. I think he has very many uh, auteur esque, you know, things about him. Whether or not those are good or bad, that's debatable. I think part of that also may be just the simple fact that, um, like, there was all of the hullabaloo about Halloween and Halloween Two, and how he got sidetracked into doing remakes, and they weren't entirely original. And on top of that, like. Uh, the studio was heavily involved in editing and taking some of the control away from him and like didn't give him the okay to do certain things. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly. I don't agree with those statements. Um, I'll say that right now. Hmm. But yeah, I just, I, overall I got, I, I, I mean, wanted I, I to don't, like I don't think that, <laughs> I don't think that, um, that there has been as fully a realized American horror film as the devil's rejects or, um, or the Lords of Salem in a long time. Um, like just completely realized from vision to execution okay, to now, final product. Now, and, and I, we, we talked about this, uh, off, off air once. And, uh, I think we definitely want to go to it into it is in, in quite a long fashion in some, uh, film, uh, an upcoming film find episode. But, um, what, so, so you say that and like, now I know that you're like a big fan of the hostile films. Now, where does that kind of fall into the Uber? If you will? I think that, um, I think what, I think what distinguishes that statement from how I feel about the hostile films is like, I, I love hostile part two in particular. Um, but I don't think that Eli Roth has a discernible directorial style. I think he like has a very good sense of humor and he has a very good um, set of writing chops. But I don't think that as a visual artist, um, he's necessarily as interesting as I find Rob Zombie personally. Uh, yeah, and, and I'll uh, I'll definitely back up that statement. I. I it's one of those things is that like if you were to watch Lords of Salem and you didn't know it was directed by Rob Zombie, you would certainly know it just by looking at it. If you'd seen any of his previous work, you'd just kind of it sinks in. It's like this mm-hmm. is clearly a Rob Zombie film, and that I, I suppose that's to his credit in a lot of ways. Even though certain things I think that he does are a little bit overdone, a little bit kind of I, not for my particular taste. I'll say that, and uh, and I, I could see how some people would, you know, get it. And I, I I dig his kind of wanting to go into specific kind of imagery over and over again. Uh, it, it's a good thing, but in, in a way, I I'm 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 so I'm so of two minds of how I feel about a lot of his work. It's like I want to like a lot of it, and at the same time, it's, it's there's some of it where I'm just like, eh, no thanks. <laughs> Right. 
What are you doing? Photocopies of your butt over there? I get it. Yeah. Well. Sending them off. That's how you make out concert flyers, kids. Photocopy your butt. All right. So. All right. Yeah. Yeah. There. There you have it. That's my two cents. Yeah. So that that's our review of Lord of Satan. We or Salem. Satan. There's a lot of Satan in the film. So, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, I know we didn't go too much into the story itself, but uh, it is a lot of, like I said, it's it's not a super deep story. I think the performances overall are are pretty decent, if not a little over the top from time to time. But then again, in a Rob Zombie film, that is to be expected. Um, I I don't now. Sid Haig is listed in the credits. Do you remember seeing him at all? I think I he, think he was cut out. Well. I think he is a. I think he's there. I think he's just not there in the way that he would have been noticeable had the scenes been left intact. But you know, like he was in that film and Clint Howard and um, uh, somebody else. But they were all like people taking play. Like it was all back in the past in Salem's yeah. past. So there was a there was a apparently a large chunk of stuff that got cut from the film. Hmm. Um, a lot of the a lot of it. Uh, featuring those actors. So I think that he just appears in some of the like trial scenes and uh, doesn't really say much or do much. Okay. All right. So, yep, that, that's it. That is our review of Lords of Salem. Uh, you know, Matt, uh, Matt, Matt particularly liked it a lot, and I was uh, not so much. So uh, that's it for that. We're going to take a break right now, and uh, we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about Michael Bay's new film, something completely different from the spectrum, and uh, we're going to be talking about pain and gain. Stay tuned, everybody. Welcome back. We are going to jump into our second new release review of this week. Here is the trailer for Michael Bay's Pain and Gain. I'm hot. I'm big. No. No. My name is Daniel Lugo. And I believe in fitness. 
All this began because it was time to push myself harder. Oh, there you go, yes! Otherwise, I was looking at another 40 years of wearing sweatpants to work. Mr. Doble, are you currently using steroids? I think they messed me up. Don't worry, that's what we specialize in here. Penis magic. I'm a self-made man. I made a lot of money. Maybe yourself ought to spend some of it on a salad. You know who invented salad? Poor people. He was just get tired of being where you are, Adrian. No, I kind of like it here. I mean, a weight's a noodle. I mean, in life, man. When's the last time you paid your rent when it was due? I got a plan to change that. Where'd you do your time, pal? Up north. How you fixed for a job now? You just can't kidnap a guy and take his things. That's so illegal. I'm sure we can. Victor Kershaw is a criminal prick who deserves bad stuff to happen to him. We go through with this. Nobody gets hurt, right? <laughs> oh, man. We snatch him. There he is! We grab him. He signs a few signatures. We give him a protein shake. He doesn't even know what happened. I watched a lot of movies, Paul. I know what I'm doing. The Sun Jim gang has successfully acquired every asset you had. What happens now? Now I go to work. I know it does. That's it. Get it. You said no violence. And I meant it when I said it. I swear to God. I cannot kill. Duly noted. Look, when this is over, we'll all go camping. All right? Okay. All right. That was the trailer for Pain and Gain, the new movie uh, by Michael Bay. Starring Mark Wahlberg, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and Tony Shalhoub. It's, uh, it, it is basically kind of like what you heard in the trailer there. It's uh, a couple of muscle-bound dudes decide that they're going... They, they want their slice of, of America. They, they want their, uh, their piece of the American dream, but they're not really willing to work for it too awful hard. So they, uh, they kidnap Tony Shalhoub's character, torture him... Uh, over a long period to try to get uh, him to sign over papers and sign over his wealth. But uh, the sad part is is that these guys are not exactly what you would call intelligent people. No. Um, but uh, let's uh, before we get there, let's let's talk about Michael Bay real quick so people can kind of get a little uh, a little bit of where we're coming from. Matt, what are your kind of thoughts on Michael Bay as a filmmaker? Um Okay, this is, uh, I actually have a very grandiose theory about Michael Bay, if you'll indulge me in just a moment. Certainly. Um, I think that Michael Bay is the only 100% American auteur. Hmm. And I think it's because he is absolutely not influenced by anything (laughs) outside of the United States. Uh, filmically, culturally, um, pretty much anything. Like, he just doesn't care. He's a jingoistic, militaristic, um, rah-rah, bromance, kind of uh, explosion-filled action films. Mm -hmm. And there's something that I think is purely American about that uh, style of filmmaking. Um, So that's my kind of grandiose theory. And uh, because I view him in that way, I tend to 
appreciate him with a knowing smirk. Um, like, I know his movies are crap. And, well, with the exception of The Rock and maybe Pain and Gain. Um, honestly, I think this one's pretty good. But um, I always enjoy the crap that he makes, which I can't say about other crappy filmmakers. <clears throat> Brett Ratner. <laughs> I look. I I I I never want to be a Brett Ratner apologist, but I, I don't care what anybody says. I do enjoy his Red Dragon. I, I don't. A lot of people no, don't. It, but. That's solid, but it is. I th- I think that is um that the acting and everything else is good, and like I don't know what Brett Ratner necessarily brought to the table. That's true. It could have really been done by anybody. I mean, that was really like you know uh, Edward Norton's movie. Yeah. To really you know, fuck up. Anyways, um, myself, I am a huge fan of, of Michael Bay, and, and I, I'm kind of in the same boat as you are. Um, I, I know what he's producing is not exactly what we're going to call the highest of art of cinema, but you know what? Sometimes it's, it's a fun time. And, oh, yeah. And many times, and, and I think, and, and I was talking with Laura about this, I think this is almost a very dude thing as well. Sometimes you just want to see some shit blow up pretty. And there's no one that does that better than Michael Bay. I mean, yeah. a lot of the things he does are, you know, silly and juvenile and this. And But yeah. if you know what you're going to, you know, if you know what you're going to get when you go in and you're accepting of that and you're in and you embrace that, then it's in, to me, it's like a why not? Um, yeah, I'm with you. But like you said, you're right. I, I think honestly, I think The Rock is still his his masterpiece work, and it really it really holds up super well. And if you get the Blu-ray, the Blu-ray, uh, the sound tr- the um the sound mix on the Blu-ray is fantastic. It'll uh, mm-hmm. give you. And it has that amazing sure. uh, yeah. score by uh, is it Henry Gregson Williams? I believe that, that? so. I think so. And one of his first uh, scores for a for a militaristic film. So uh, yeah, really solid score. Well, yeah. So. Dude. Yeah, clearly we're both uh, fairly decent Michael Bay fans, dis- despite him not being, uh, you know, considered a fantastic filmmaker. Because you know, you, like I said, you 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 know what you want and you get it when you go in there. And you know, who, who's to say? You know, <laughs> you go to McDonald's, right? If you're super super hungry and you go to McDonald's, you realize that you're not going to be going to Ruth's Chris. You're going to McDonald's. Yeah. You know, and if you're super hungry. McDonald's tastes fucking fantastic, but you know you go to Roos Chris to have a nice to have a nice meal. But sometimes you just like fuck it, just give me a burger. I just want to eat, and yeah. uh, that that is a Michael Bay film. Uh, this is a pretty uh, Pain and Gain is a pretty low budget movie for Michael Bay. Uh, the reports are all the way from twenty million to about twenty six million dollars for this. It is the lowest budget Michael Bay film since Bad Boys, which was nineteen million dollars, and that's in nineteen ninety five money. So, if yeah. you really want to think about it, Pain and Gain is Michael Bay's cheapest movie to date. And in true Michael Bay fashion, I think, uh, it looks like there's a lot more than $25 million on the screen. The guy just has, you say what you will about him, but the, the guy has like a gloss and a patina on what he does that is, there's such a slickness to it that I, I think um, in kind of the opposite way of Rob Zombie, he has... He has that kind of like slickness to everything, but but like Rob Zombie, whenever you see his stuff, you know that that's what his, you know that that's a Michael Bay production. When you see that Victoria's Secret commercial on TV, you're like, that's a Michael Bay movie. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think um, stylistically, Pain and Gain is very much Michael Bay, right? It doesn't uh, it doesn't look cheap. It certainly has that high production value, which is something that I think even when he does these big, uh, like two hundred million dollar Transformers films, I really do think he milks what he can from the non special effects portions of that to uh, like give this uh, sort of all-in gloss to the film itself, which is uh, also pretty rare for a lar- large-budget filmmaker like him, right? Like, I-, I get the feeling, even though his movies cost so much, that he really is using every every possible cent um, that he could, um, and throwing that into the film's look and feel. Yeah, and and I like that about it. Yeah, it's one of those things is that you feel that he he has. He, an affinity for what he's doing. It's like, mm-hmm. it, it almost seems like every second that he's filming, he's going, this is going to be the coolest shit ever. Yeah. And even if it's the most mundane, dumb thing, it's like, and, and I, I like that kind of, uh, that sense in somebody that, that everything is going to be the best thing and everything is going to be, you know, at a particular level. Uh, let's see. Yeah, this so is, I- go ahead. I do. I do think that it's that it's uh, striking this film uh, because it does retain that feel. While I think, uh, like content-wise, it's actually very different from a lot of Michael Bay. Like, just the story itself is not your typical um, good guys, bad guys kind of setup. Or um, there's not an emphasis on explosions. I actually there's, don't. There's, there's not one. one. Expl- there is one, is there? but it's like. It's because they fucked up killing a guy one time when they crashed the car, and then like they still fucked up that explosion. Well, yeah. Well, I, I don't. I don't even. <laughs> and I that's don't, not even really an explosion. I don't. Partic- <laughs> not, yeah. not in the make Michael Bay sense. Like yeah. I, I, when I think explosion, I think Michael Bay explosion, and there's zero Michael Bay explosions in this. Yeah, that's right. kind of a fiery. I, I see. I don't even go so far. <laughs> I call like that a fireball. I saw it's really? a fiery crash. Yeah, to me, that's enough. not an explosion. An explosion is like you know what a fucking Michael. I say Michael Bay explosion. That's a trauma explosion. You know what I'm looking at. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it it looks so good, and this is a, this was shot on the uh, the red camera. A lot of interesting, like real high frame rate stuff in this. That uh, you know, I'm sure some people thought was stylistically stupid or whatever. But I I certainly enjoyed it, and I think he does it better than uh, um, Zack Snyder in all of Zack Snyder's slow mo. Yeah, I think stuff. so too. I think I think that uh, his use of the red technology um, on this film almost approaches what uh, Tony Scott got to with uh, like Deja Vu or Unstoppable, for for example. Um, just this like very kinetic visual style because of the different things he was able to do with this digital film medium. Yeah, and I, and I think you're right in uh, in, the, in the Tony Scott comparison, and I think that. It, it, he's probably not going to live up to you know the Tony Scott level or anything, oh, no. <laughs> but I, I think that's I think that slot is definitely open for Bay to kind of swim in there and be able to do something you know like that because a lot like especially towards the end of his career and stuff, uh, Tony Scott got a lot of shit for for his stylistic choices, but like for me, if you really go across his entire you know body of work. I think Tony Scott was always wanting to get to that point. It was yeah. always a very progressive type thing, and I, I think you see a lot of that as well with Bay and his particular style. And um, 
I think he's going in in a direction, and and I hope he continues and will do like another small budget movie like this. You know, I mean, the big budgets are nice and cool and everything like that, but I, I think kind of constraining yourself shows what you can do. Uh, you know, creatively as opposed to just throwing money at the problem, which I don't necessarily want to say that that's something that he does in the Transformers movies is just throw money at a problem. And I think you need a little bit more credit for being able to direct all of this fucking CGI and shit and, you know, to correspond with, you know, real life action stuff. That's not as simple as everyone would like to make it out to be. But. No, 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 no. And I, I think he does do it well. Um, and I think it's just a taste thing. People just don't like that. Uh, I don't know. It's it's like a style substance debate, I guess, on, yeah. on, on one level. So, uh, pain and gain. What did you actually? Think? Uh, I I I enjoyed it quite a lot. Um, it it was a little bit overlong, um, mm-hmm. as Michael Bay uh, films tend to be sometimes. But here's the thing. Here's what I wrote in my notes. At least they didn't go to Cuba. <laughs> For thirty more minutes, so yeah, and well, you you say that, but like here's the here's the thing. In I I think Bad Boys Two was one of the most uh, awesome action films in the last couple of years because that was an action film that was two and a half hours long that never stopped, and I I I was never bored, never thought like oh this should really get going. Great movie. I don't care what anybody says, but I wrote down here it's a bit overlong, but could have been, could have twenty could have had twenty minutes edited out. But then again, the excesses are what makes Michael Bay Michael Bay, and I respect that. Mm-hmm. And it, it, that's it's so weird to just go it's overlong, but yeah, the director is the guy who does overlong stuff. But that's kind of okay. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, yeah, I thought. I thought this movie was really interesting uh, for a couple of reasons, although, uh, and I really enjoyed all of the performances. Hmm. I thought, uh, like, Wahlberg and uh, and uh, The Rock and, uh, God, who is that third guy? I always forget his name. Um, Anthony Mackie. Anthony Mackie, yeah. Um, I thought they were all terrific and, uh, like, had a good blend of that menace slash completely, uh, like, dumber than dirt out of their element have no clue what to do at any given moment um i i I thought that was uh that was pretty nice uh to have have just a range of performers that you don't normally see getting to be that combination of goofy and uh terrifyingly powerful yeah, I think I think the uh, the real standout performance in the entire movie is is uh, is Dwayne Johnson's uh, performance as yep. uh, mm-hmm. Paul Doyle, the guy. So essentially, he plays kind of a, a reformed uh, criminal who's just this giant bodybuilder, and uh, he's he's become a Christian and he tries to live his life by the Lord, but like like a lot of reformed um, you know inmates, uh, kind of strays every now and then, but. He's he's actually probably about the only one in the story, though. While his morals get bent a little bit, he does have a moral sense of character about him, and he's one of the few mm-hmm. in this film that actually has a little bit. While he struggles with it constantly, you know, he it, it, it's it's so fun to watch his transformation as almost kind of there are points in it where he's he's really like a child, even where he's got this 
big amount of innocence about him. He puts on these puppy dog eyes and his transformation for when, you know, they finally get a good amount of money and he goes over the edge and he, you know, delves back into his dark ways. And but his character arc I think is as is the best one of all of them, but all, like like you said, all of the uh, acting and performances in this are, are top notch. Rob Corddry's hilarious in what little bit that he has as a as mm-hmm. a body as a uh, gym owner. But uh, yeah, it's 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 a fun time, really. I mean, it's it's a fun time in the way that something as horribly sadistic as this is is like it's it's a very dark black comedy in many ways, and there's a lot of moral ambiguity shown within within the story itself mm-hmm. you're not exactly asked to uh not necessarily love but you're not necessarily asked to hate these guys either you're kind of just along for the ride and like you know what they're doing is horrible but there is a weird small sense of you that kind of wants them to get away with it in a way so i that was to me that was one of the more interesting things in this you were like you kind of it's. I don't want to go so far as to say it's like you know the oceans movies, but you know, it, it, which essentially they are doing bad things in those movies, but you want them to get away with it. Now this is clearly a much, uh, a much harsher case because these guys are you know kidnapping and you know torturing a guy for months on end, but the, the moral standpoint in this and how it's presented to the audience is quite interesting to me. Yeah, I I think so too, and. Um, I initially had some reservations about about this because it is based on like a series of articles um, that are all fascinating to read in and of themselves that detail the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just I don't know exploitive on one level, I guess, um, but not necessarily a bad way. Um, it's just it's a weird dance that it does with morality um that is actually pretty interesting absolutely and like like I said it you kind of want them to get get away with it in a sense but at the same time you know what they're doing is a horrible thing and then when uh ed harris's character who's a private detective who uh uh gets hired to go after these guys you, you really start you know wanting that character to succeed in his thing. So it's it's an interesting duality that you're just like, oh, I want these guys to get, oh, you know, you want them to get after yeah. him. Because you know at the end, this can't be, this can't end good on on any amount, because it's just like things, it's such a comedy of errors that everything that could possibly go wrong did go wrong and kept going wrong over and over and over again. And instead of pulling up stakes and running away, you're just like, well, let's uh, let's keep digging this grave. <laughs> well, and I and I wonder, I wonder if that works because uh, because everybody gets their own voiceover narration, like the, like you get everybody's point of view uh, uh, as to like what's going on and what they're doing, and I think that that serves like that function of helping you identify with some people um, more than others, uh, but also being able to understand like maybe why these lunkhead uh, gym rats are, like, actually doing this stuff. Um, and, and also, like, there's a lot of the comedy that comes out of that. Like, when uh, when Mark Wahlberg just uh, tells you, like, I'm Danny Ludo and I, I believe in fitness. Like, <laughs> I think I love that line, just that ends the film. Like, 
it's so good. But yeah, you're you're right, and 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 I think that's something that I'm sure that many people uh, would complain about, especially like um, your screenwriting uh, professionals mm-hmm. or would just be like, oh, there's so many of these voiceovers that are in there, and that's something that you you know, it's uh, supposedly you know the voiceover is the crutch of a of a bad screenwriter, and that's not necessarily always true, you know, taxi driver. So shut up, um, <laughs> but. You're, you're right. That it gives you a chance to identify with each one of these, each one of these characters, and I think it's a lot like, um, I think of it like like uh, like supervillains. Um, the Joker doesn't believe what he's doing is wrong, in his own crazy fucked up mind, in his own crazy world that he's created for himself. He's Batman, and Batman is the Joker. So he's the one mm-hmm. who's going around. It's like all of this is justified in in his brain, and that's what I think a lot of the voiceovers do for this movie is kind of give you a sense of where these guys are at, what they're doing in their heads, and in a sense, just justifies their actions. And for me, that that worked completely. Yeah, I, I'm on I'm on the same page there. I think. So um, yeah. That it's there's not a whole lot to say, uh, but it it's a Michael Bay. Yeah, film. I don't want to give away any of the uh, any of the beats because I do think the story itself is so enjoyable just to like tag along with. I don't really want to talk too much about it. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, I just want like people, uh, audience members out there, you should go and uh, see Pain and Gain. I think we've given an official endorsement at this point. Absolutely. Um, at and least was, tonally in our conversation. Yeah, it was uh, it was number one at the box office, even though it didn't rake in a boatload of money. Certainly not in the uh, in the Michael Bay uh, top top anywhere in his uh, opening weekends that his you know regular movies do Transformers and whatnot. Also, not PG thirteen or targeted towards uh, like teenage audiences You're either, right. like the like the Transformers films. I don't. We haven't seen one. We haven't seen an R rated film from him since Bad Boys Two, right? Or, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's been quite a while. Like even the island was PG thirteen, right? Yeah, so it's been a while. Which I think was, I think was kind of a sadly underrated movie. I thought that was a little better than people gave it credit for. But the island, I, I enjoyed that movie. Uh, but yeah, so that that's uh, that is uh, our review for Pain and Gain, directed by uh, Michael Bay, starring Mark Wahlberg, Dwayne Johnson, Anthony Mackie, Tony Shalhoub, Ed Harris, Rob Corddry. It's a it's a good fun flick. I mean, it's not is it high art? No, is it fun and glossy and you know entertaining? I think so. Don't take your kids to see it. I actually saw an eight year old child walk out with his parents in this, and I'm like, really? You let your kid watch this movie, and I got to say this though, and and I have one other note. I go, uh, this is the uh, the first actual true Michael Bay strip club uh, scene that we've ever seen, and that was the only thing in the film I was a little bit disappointed with. I was like, I wish he would have done that just a little bit better. <laughs> because it I'm seems just like he has such a natural proclivity for it. It does, then, it does, and it was nope. just like it wasn't it wasn't what I really wanted it to be, and I was just like, ah, oh, dude, it's like we got a rated R movie, we're in a strip club. Really fucking get into it, man. And you didn't do it as much as I wanted. But then again, you know, that may have been kind of, I don't know. But yeah, so that's that's Pain and Gain, a strong recommendation from the two of us. And uh, we're going to take a quick little break right here, and then we're going to come back and close out the show. And uh, yeah.
right, everybody, that is it for this episode of The Film Find. Oh, had a good time today. Yeah. But uh, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, anything like that, feel free to email us at thefilmfind at gmail.com. Go to thefilmfind.com. There you can find the links to like us on Facebook, Twitter, uh, all of that, social media, whatnots. And uh, please, please do that. And review us on iTunes while, while you're oversubscribing to us on iTunes. Uh, your review just helps us go out and reach out to other people. And so when people type in, you know, movie podcast or something into iTunes, uh, you know, maybe this show will pop up a little bit higher on the list than it normally was. So uh, that that's what this that's what this is. Is you know, we love putting out this product for you. We are losing money on this proposition. Just you know, so share it with a friend. Let other people know about it. Have you know, if you enjoy this show, share that enjoyment with somebody else. So uh, that's it. All right, everybody, that is it for this episode of The Film Find. Uh, hopefully, we'll be doing some Film Find dailies, maybe. Uh, we're releasing this on a Wednesday, so it's a little bit uh, a little bit later than we normally would have liked to. So, But we're going to be reviewing Iron Man 3. So the whole, you know, Iron Man 3 is coming out. The box office or uh, the um, summer, summer movie season has officially begun with Iron Man 3, and uh, we'll be reviewing that as, and, of course, all the other giant films coming out this summer. So for Matt Smith, I'm Adam Fortress. We'll see you next time, guys.
All right, I know some crazy things are going on, but I heard something about a pudding cup going on in the background there. What's the pudding cup? Oh, um, you guys, you guys, uh, I don't, you guys trading I in pudding? Not, I do not have a pudding cup. No, it's just someone walking by my desk here. You guys like pudding cups? Who wants pudding? Yeah, you want pudding, pudding, pudding? Cups, pudding cup? Why can't you just give me a snack pack? <laughs> got got a warehouse full of that shit, got just so, so I can get the uh, coupon rebate or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> What's nutritious and delicious? And you're sure this is nutritious and delicious? Um, yeah. Look, sir, there's a big fucking pastry case over here. Ain't much of it, you know, that ain't delicious, but ain't much of it nutritious neither. So, uh, have at it. There was seriously a dude that came in once and said, um, looks, looks over the pastry case, and with all earnestness in his voice, he goes, Anything in here, uh, vegan? Dude, it's all it's all cakes. It's all made with no. everything vegans hate. It's it's all milk, it's all butter, it's all eggs. Go, it's all of that, that stuff. Corner, go to the coffee shop downtown near the university where like uh all the guys are wearing like jeans with their uh cuffs rolled up and flannel shirts and like you can you can probably find like a vegan muffin in there or something. Something with like unleavened wheat that is nothing. Like, <laughs> can I get can I get that matzo muffin together, you got back there? <laughs> squished together nuts and berries. <laughs>